You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads connect us to a journey out of the darkness into the light? I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, we start with Esther Rosanne, author of, I love this book, I just finished it, Family Business. And after the break, Tom Clavin talks about his new book, Lightning Down. SJ, good to see you again. Good to see you, Larry. It's been a long time. Now, um, this is what somebody we both know who I admire greatly. He's the writer's writer in terms of crime fiction. That's Reed Farrell Coleman. And Reed said, uh, your book is a masterpiece of the P.I. genre. So I'm going to go off, sc- off script a little bit. I would have loved to have been in the time where the Algonquin Roundtable was available, even though it's a fly on the wall. So is there a crime fiction version of the Algonquin Roundtable? We guys all get together. I know you're, you, you kind of coalesce sometimes at various events. Is there a chance for you guys to sit down and tell tall stories? Yeah, in fact, there is. Now, it depends who you mean by you guys, but there are eight or nine of Thank us. Thank you for the correction. Um, yeah. No, no, no. I didn't mean in terms of women, but I, because I use guys, I mean, everybody, but you know, there are, are a number of different groups of uh, crime writers. Um, I imagine. And, and in all different places, um, I know there's a crowd out in Los Angeles and stuff, but here in New York, uh, there are eight or nine of us who do hang out together. Uh, we had a Tuesday night zoom all during the pandemic all right. where we kept each other sane um, and we do, we tell, you know, tall tales and, and short tales and tales about, um, you know, my publisher is insane in this way, or my publisher is brilliant in that way, or gee, I would like to do a book about this and that. And somebody else says, well, you know, have you thought about doing this with it? And, um, and yeah, so, so yeah, there is that. I don't know that we're as witty as the Dorothy Parker. people. <laughs> Um, yeah, because they were one upping each other all the time. Right, right. We don't work that hard at being clever, but we do really like each other and we do hang out and, and um, we go to each other's events when, you know, when the world is sane and there are events. And uh, it's, you know, I, I treasure them, these, these, these people, these guys. So let me ask um, you a question. Do you play cards? I do. All right. So this is what I think about what you do, but also writers in general. Some cards are on the table in terms of storytelling and some cards are held closer to the chest. And at various points, another card comes down, another card comes down and you draw us into the story. This is what I think you did brilliantly in family business. Some cards are on the table. Red herrings and whatever, if I can mix metaphors and everything else. But along the way, other cards are slowly exposed and we are drawn into your story. Yeah, um, you you do need, I mean, the one thing you can't do, no, there's two things you can't do. One is you can't lie to the reader. You can't tell the reader something that turns out not to be true. Although characters can. Right. All, all the time, but um, the writer can't. The writer can't throw the reader off that way. But the other thing um, you can't do is have the end of the story not be mirrored all through. You have to be laying those cards out so that when you get there and you reveal everything, the reader can't say, wait, but I didn't know that. So how come, you know, um, and so, yeah, I, I, I try to do that. I, there are better, I play poker. There are better poker players than I am All right. even in the crowd that I play with. But as a writer, I do try to, I, I want to be in a position of readers saying, why didn't I get that? Why didn't I figure that out? And me saying, I don't know, I told you everything you needed to know. <laughs> so in a sense, I'll follow up. You can have a devious mind as a writer. I think you do. Yes, yes. You sort of have to um, as a crime writer, as uh, other forms of writer, not necessarily. But as a crime writer, you really do need to um, because you need to be uh, there. There's the straightforward 
uh, chronological story of what happened. Right. But you're never telling that. You're always telling the part that that sort of sticks up above the water sometimes. And, and you're going from here to here, but all of this stuff is, is what's important. Um, so you, you do need to have that kind of, of twisty mind as a crime writer. Now, I may have asked this question in the past. We've done numerous conversation interviews over the years. What was the origins of Lydia Chin and Bill Smith and that pairing? Because you alternate at times but if I asked the question before, forgive me, but I'd like to know more about how they came together. Well, um, th- how they came together in my mind and how they came together in their world are, are a little different. Yes. But um, what happened in my mind was that Bill Smith was my first character and he was that iconic voiceover private eye, uh, that world weary guy, Robert Mitchum in his younger days, that kind of thing. Yeah, Marlowe. Um, Marlowe, yeah, yeah. The guy who just knows that the world cannot be saved, that there's nothing he can do about that, but that individuals can be saved and he can save people sort of one by one. Um, But he can't be saved either because he spends too much time among the filth trying to get other people out of it. So that was that was Bill Smith. And at the time I started writing, Private Eyes were having sidekicks. Before that, they didn't. Marlowe never had a sidekick. Right. Uh, that you know, Sam Spade had a partner, but not a sidekick, and so on. But people were having sidekicks. It was the thing, um, and they were largely having sidekicks who were just like them, except psychotic. So that any time the Private Eye needed something done that was morally questionable, he'd call the sidekick and the sidekick would take care of it for him. And except the oh, the only one of those that really worked for me was uh, uh, Mouse. Oh, I was just gonna, Easy Rollings and I just saw the movie Easy again. Rollings and Mouse. And the reason Mouse worked is because Easy rarely actually called him. Mouse would show, show up, up. Yeah. and and Easy was as afraid of him as everybody else was. And he would say, Mouse, don't do me any favors. And Mouse would anyway and, you know, make more trouble. But the ones who took care of things for the other guy so they wouldn't have to worry about it and they wouldn't have to get their hands dirty. I didn't want Bill Smith to be in that situation right. because I wanted him specifically to if there were only two choices to make and they were both bad to have to make one and then live with it because moral ambiguity, as far as I'm concerned, is at the heart of the private eye form. And that was what I wanted to talk about. So I thought, okay, I'll give him a sidekick because the great advantage to a sidekick is that he doesn't have to talk to himself for the reader to know what's going on. He can talk to somebody else. But the sidekick has to be as different from him as possible so that Anything he, any firm ground he finds to stand on, the sidekick says, no, that's not really so true. That's not so solid. And so she had to be a woman because he was a man, somebody small because he was big, somebody young because he was middle-aged. And I thought, oh, well, what the hell? Um, Let me make her from a different culture. Right. And that way, even the food is different. Everything is different. And I had always been interested in Chinese American culture, Chinese culture. I had specifically gone to Oberlin for college because they have a big uh, East Asian studies program. In Ohio. In Ohio, yeah. Because I went to Bowling Green State University, so I know Oberlin. Well, there you go. Yeah. Um, And, you know, so I, I, I thought if I were going to make Lydia from another uh, culture that was not mine. The Chinese American culture was one I had a chance of maybe getting right. So I did. I made her Chinese American, born here, living in Chinatown. I gave her older brothers and a mother and a late father. And I started writing with her as a sidekick. And she was willing to put up with that for about half a book. 
And then she started saying, yeah, well, I'm, I, I have stories to tell too. And I will tell the private eye story differently from the way Bill tells it. And so I thought, okay, I will give her a book. And that was how that came about where they are each other's sidekick. Um, in, in their world, they met, um, this is a story I haven't written yet, although I probably will, but uh, he had, he needed, he was doing security for a, uh, an art event and he needed people who could mingle right. with the crowd right. and look like art people and do undercover security. And somebody said, well, there's this Chinese chick. And so he hired her and um, he, she, there was, there was uh, a disruption at the event and she had to take somebody down and she just, you know, he's just going, whoa, yeah. oh, look at that. And that was how they met. All so. right. So if you're just joining us, my guest is S.J. Roseanne. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson. We're talking about her newest book, Family Business. So let's talk about plot points. A message from Mel Wu, one of your main characters. And we find out, we think we find out something is buried in the headquarters of the Tong in Chinatown. So the first thing that pops into my mind, going way back in the history of television, is Geraldo Rivera doing the opening of Al Capone's Vault, which was a major TV coverage and was a big, big disappointment. But Geraldo knew how to get attention for anything he did going back to Willowbrook and these days um, yeah. doing, doing stuff on Fox. So this is my big takeaway. Thank you so much because it's kind of out there, but we're not sure that there's something buried in this building and that kind of feeds... And, it's, and it's a missing message kind of feeds a story. Am I off base with that? No, that um, the, the question, the idea that there's something buried in the building and the question of what it is and the greed of everybody to find out what it is, um, is a very important driver in this in this story, because there are two things going on. One is the idea that there's something buried in the building. Right of great value and the other is the building itself being of great value not because it is but because of where it is and what it could be torn down to then become so the question of what's in the building and how valuable is it really i mean that's a parallel issue right is is it really valuable or is it only valuable because of where it is um and and so but but that's that's part of the sleight of hand because you don't know um what that what it is that's buried in the building until very close to the end and everybody's running around trying to to find it and figure it out and and and, and get their hands on it now there have been numerous uh films, TV programs, news stories. We learn about, through those media outlets, the hierarchy of the mafia. In your book, what are we learning? What are you telling us about the history of the inner workings of Chinese-American crime, the Tongs, the rules? Is there a boss of bosses? So I'm throwing a lot out there, but this is what I kind of learned through your book, because I know you do your research. I know you have to make a dramatic book. As I said before, the Godfather films, everything, the, all the books about John Gatto and everything else, we think we know. But I only, only can speak for myself. We know very little about the inner workings of Chinese-American crime. Yeah, the um, Chinese-American tongs are related to the Hong Kong tongs. All of them are losing power now. Um there is no capo de tutti capi. There, there is no head boss over all the other bosses. Right. But there are bigger bosses and smaller bosses. There are some tongs that are very powerful, some that are much less powerful. Um, they were more powerful in Chinatown when Chinatown was the only Chinese American uh, 
uh, area in, in New York. Now there are five or six Chinatowns, uh, true all over the country, uh, where there are Chinatowns, uh, San Francisco and so on. The Tongs started as what they still often claim to be as merchant protection associations in China, where the Tongs and the triads, they're slightly different, but where um, you needed protection from not only local criminals, but local law enforcement, which would often shake down the merchants. And so they made associations to protect themselves. And they're often associated also with um, uh, martial arts schools. Right, right. And one of the reasons uh, the martial arts schools each send lion dancers on New Year's to the local merchants and the local law enforcement and, and, and you give them red envelopes with money. Um, and this tradition is because if you didn't do that, the martial arts students would come back the next day and destroy your place. So it was a shakedown itself. But what they do is um, they have a, an area traditionally and you pay protection money and then nobody else gets to shake you down right. in that area. The, uh, the, the, the names that I used, uh, the white paper fan, the red pole, all that, they are traditional names for different positions in the tongue. Uh, the, the, the money manager and the advisor and, and that kind of thing. Just like we learned in the Godfather books about the, uh, the, um, the different advisors and the, right. the war council and stuff like right. that. Um, these, these are, they're, they're not that difficult to research, but as I say, they are losing power in Chinatown, which can only be a good thing. Now, the last funerals I've been to are Jewish funerals. And the one thing I always appreciated, once the casket was put in the ground, and for Jews, it's a very basic casket in most cases. Everybody, to honor the person in the family, could put a shovel of dirt in there. And I think that's really, really important, what it symbolizes. There is a couple of funerals in your book. And is, is a Cypress Hill a true cemetery? Oh, yeah. Right. yeah. Cypress Hill is a huge cemetery in Queens. All right. Beautiful. So, so this is going back to my reference about putting a shovel of dirt into the grave. In the rituals of the Chinese funerals, why do you turn your back to the grave? I could not tell you. Um, it is considered unlucky to watch the coffin lowered down. Now, I don't know how many Chinese people actually do this today, but in a Tang funeral, you would have much, it would be very conservative in terms of the way it's conducted. Right. So there would be that, um, but why it's considered unlucky, I, I don't know. This probably goes back uh, a long, long time. A lot of what the Chinese do in terms of superstition is to avoid, it's just similar to, to what we do as Jews, to avoid the gaze of the ghosts and the spirits and the, um, you know, bad luck uh, things that are, are, are looking for you. So maybe when the coffin is being lowered, there are the, the, the spirits welcoming it you shouldn't have to see them because they might want you to. I, I mean, maybe that simple that they might want you. Right. You're not ready to go. You know, the, the same reason we don't name babies after living older people so that when the angel of death comes to collect the older person, he doesn't make a mistake and collect the baby like the angel of death. Is that stupid? I don't think so. But anyway. Uh, once again, my guest is I love her, by the way. Numerous times we've had conversations over the year and her cat is on her lap. So I always appreciate that for comfort, for purposes. The book is called Family Business. Is it safe to say in this book, a lot of, a lot of the principles have cross agendas. And the one part of the book I will not reveal, but it's really important. There's some significant secrets going on. Oh, they, yeah, almost everybody, almost all the major characters have agendas that cross each other 
and maybe even have more than one agenda at a time. There are deep secrets that are held from the people in the book are, are holding them from each other. Right. There are uh, secrets that were never intended to be revealed or were intended to be revealed only to certain people that then get revealed to others. Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's I, my, my basic um, hope as a writer is to be presenting the reader with characters, all of whom have what the character considers good reasons and reasonable reasons for their actions. And, you know, rather than this is a bad guy, this is a good guy. They're all good guys in their own minds. And so you, the reader needs to make room for them to understand them, even though the reader does also get to take a side the same way Lydia and Bill do. That, but that, I, okay, I didn't mean to interject, but that's well said because I know that you're aware of the world around you. In the previous books, you put some people in we could relate to. Jack Abbott was a reference to my, in my mind to the, mm -hmm. the book about the, Absolutely. Art, the art Absolutely. world. So I'm uh, Jackson Ting, T-I-N-G, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, is mm -hmm. a real estate developer. And what comes to mind because where the money comes from and how he comes across initially in the beginnings of the book, boy, I'm thinking about Donald Trump. I really am. Is that fair or yeah. fair? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's fair in the sense that there is nobody in New York who can think real estate developer without thinking Donald Trump and especially uh, ego ridden real estate developer. Jackson would never, uh, from given where he came from, would never become Donald Trump. He just could not be that big. Um, but I think they all want to. I think all real estate developers, um, what they like, what, what people like Jackson like is the uh, handshaking and the uh, $5,000 a plate dinners where they're sitting next to the archbishop. And, you know, they like mingling in that world. And especially as Donald Trump did, um, Jackson is just a kid from Queens. Right, right. And now he is a hotshot kid from Queens. And if the project in the book that he wants to do gets built, he will be a very big deal in New York real estate. And I think that being a big deal motivates them more than money. Um, my, my sense of money is that in most cases, it's just a marker anyway. Once you have over a couple million dollars, you don't need yeah, know. more. Yeah. You just want to have more so you can see who is above you and who is below you on that hierarchy that matters to you. I have different hierarchies that matter to me, um, but that's the one that matters to them. So to someone like Jackson, building this project would prove that he can play with the big boys. And that's what he wants to do. But as I said, I don't think um, any New Yorker will ever think of real estate developers without thinking of Donald Trump and then having to uh, clear him out to, to really think of, uh, of the person actually in front of them. I just watched a Lin-Manuel Miranda's movie, In the Heights. You're, you're from the Bronx originally, correct? Yeah, yeah. So there's a phrase in there called abuela. And there's a character who's very important in that movie, who is an abuela. Not relate to him, but in, in a sense, a very strong mother figure. Is there a Chinese version? I'm thinking about um, grandfather G.A.O. Gao. Grandfather Gao. Gao. Um, is, he, is he a Chinese-American version of Abuela? Well, um, it, it depends. The, the Chinese have, have very strong, a very strong sense of their parents and their grandparents and their, their forebears. Right. Um, grandfather Gao himself, because he's an old man, he's been in Chinatown forever. He is an advisor to one of the Tongs, not uh, the same one that that uh, Mel Wu gets involved with. Um, he is it's it's almost a godfather figure. 
um, anybody in Chinatown can come to him for help. Right. That kind of thing. Um, he he does have uh, children and, and grandchildren of his own. Um, he is a particular friend of Lydia's and her family's. But I think in every neighborhood, and in fact, uh, I intend to deal with this in my next book, but in every neighborhood and in every ethnic group in New York, there are people who know what's going on. Um, abuelas, uh, uh, grandfathers, godfathers, uh, the, the, you know, the barber, the lady who sits on the bench in the, in the uh, playground. And, uh, you know, her kids are, are long grown, but she knows all the kids in the neighborhood and she knows what's going on. These aren't necessarily people of power, but they're always people uh, you respect and they're always the person you go to if you need to know what's happening in the neighborhood or if something is happening that you want to tell somebody about. Um, and a grandfather guy would be one of those. He's also an herbalist and, and you know, right. it's right. the, the, the uh, traditional Chinese go for traditional Chinese medicine to the herbalist. And so he has that sort of central position in the, in the village that is, um, that is Chinatown, just like we all live in villages. We have a few minutes left. And I've had people say different things about how they deal with their characters, especially writers that create on an ongoing stories with their repertory company. Now, Daniel Silver, I read a lot because I love Gabriel Alon. I know what I know how the books unfold because he has he has a system to his books. But I love Gabriel. What he's done with Gabriel is he's aging him from book to book to book. And correct me if I'm wrong. I got a feeling that Lydia and Bill Smith haven't aged and if they have or are they going to in the future because they're so important to you as the writer and I wonder if any readers ever ask you are they going to stay ageless or are they going to get older? Yeah, um, you know, there are really only a couple ways for a writer to handle that. Um, one is to do what um, Silver's doing and what um Robert Parker did, and that's to to let the character get old at the same uh, rate as as the writer. Right. Um, I chose not to do that. Another is to do what Sue Grafton did, yeah, and to keep the the character in her own time, moving every book. She Sue moved every book uh, three months from the book before it, so uh, Kinsey would age. Kinsey Milhone would age a, a year for every four years of, of Sue's life. Um, I didn't do that either. What I'm doing is what most writers do uh, or, or did. I don't know if it's, if it's done these days, but um, you sort of unhinge your characters from time. So Bill and Lydia are getting older very slowly, much more slowly than I am, much more slowly than their world is. So if you read uh, some of the earlier books, you'll find that Bill was in the Navy during the Vietnam War, although he okay. uh, right. he didn't serve in Vietnam. Um, but now that is not true because he's still in his mid-40s, and that war was a long time ago. Now, um, here's, so. my, here's my biggest regret. We've got about a minute and a half left because I could go on with you forever. So you kind of teased us. I'm curious where your ideas come from. And without giving anything away, what are you working on for your next book? Okay. The ideas come from the air. They come, I read something in the newspaper and I think, wow, that would, you know, I wonder if this could also happen or if that happened before it, that kind of thing. So that's where the ideas come from. Uh, for my next book, I have two projects. One I just finished and then uh, the book I spoke of uh, will be uh, the next Bill book where it, it involves all the, uh, it's called The Mayors of New York and okay. it, it involves the people who who essentially are the centers of these of various neighborhoods. I just finished a project set in London in 1924. Oh, I like uh, that. Yeah, something I have never done before. It involves a, a famous Chinese writer named Lao She, a really a real guy who was in London in 1924. Uh, and it also involves Judge D, whom I don't know if you know, Robert Gulick uh, translated the Judge D stories. Judge D was a real 
uh, Chinese figure, uh, sort of a Robin Hood kind of guy in the Tang Dynasty, which is uh, around you know the year 600 to 900. We've brought him to London in 1924, and Lao Shea is the uh, kind of Watson to Judge D. Sherlock Holmes, oh. and that's I just finished that book, and uh, that will uh, it's called the Murder of Mr. Ma, and you'll be seeing that eventually. So there's that. And then there's the mayors of New York. And then after that, who knows, but, uh, that's plenty to think about now. Well, what I do know is I always enjoy spending time with you. My guest has been SJ Roseanne. The new book is called family business. SJ, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Uh, after the break, Tom Clavin joins us with his new book called Lightning Down, a World War II story of survival. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope. My guest now is uh, Tom Clavin. His new book is called Lightning Down, a World War II story of survival. I consider you a friend of our podcast, Tom, but thank you for coming back. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad to be back. So before we get into the book, one of the earliest interviews we did for this podcast and also for a library out east was with a book called Old Blood Runs Red that you worked right. with on Phil Keith. So can you just share some thoughts about uh, Phil Keith? Um, I respected him greatly. You were very close to him. So I know on a previous podcast, you did a little bit of an uh, editorial piece about him, but for the people who just joined the podcast for the first time, just talk a little bit about Phil Keith. Well, Phil was a very good friend of mine, and uh, which would have been enough, but we also had a professional relationship because uh, we had done a book together called All Blood Runs Red, which was originally published in hardcover uh, in November of 2019, and we got to tour together and go to events together, and that was fun. And then, you know, our publisher was pleased enough not only by the quality of the book, but I guess it did well in the marketplace that said, do you guys have another idea? So we did. And um, we worked on our second book together. And as it turned out, we had really just turned that in, uh, our second book together, when Phil passed away, which was on March 10th of this year. And can you tell us about the book? Is it going to be published? Yeah, it's going to be pu The pub date is April 12, 2022. And, and it's called uh, To the Uttermost Ends of the Earth. And it's a, a Civil War story. Uh, it's really a Civil War naval story. Uh, I mean, I'm pleased that, that uh, Phil, who spent 25 years in the Navy and retired as a captain, got to do a, a sea story as his last project. But uh, there, there, were, there was only one real battle between uh, uh, ships, Confederate and Union ship, uh, on, on the high seas, and that was the Alabama, CSS Alabama against the USS Kearsarge, and it took place in June 19, 1864. So it's the story of how these two ships basically hunted for each other until they finally found each other off the coast of France in 1864 and the battle that took place in which only one survived. So I, one way I respect you greatly is I believe you do assiduous research in yes. a sense based on World War I and World War II and the books that you worked on. Have you become an expert on aircraft? Well, you know, I think that's where my journalism background helps because, uh, uh, a couple of things, you, you know, when, you, when you're a journalist and you're going from assignment to assignment, you, you have to sort of become a, um, uh, for each project you're working on, you have to become an expert and you have to do it pretty expeditiously because you have a deadline. You don't have years, sometimes you don't have months, it depends on the project. Right. So I've always, uh, uh, you know, right away when I'm working, I know what a project I'm working on, I cast a pretty wide net, go through a lot of material. Uh, I think I'm pretty good at, at separating the chaff from the wheat and, uh, and it's a lot of work. You know, I, I don't want to make it seem like this is, this is, you know, easy stuff to do. It's, it's, it's like riding a bicycle every time you get on, it comes back to you very easily. Um, so it's, it's, and I, but I think it helps a lot if you enjoy research, which I do. I mean, I know writers who are wonderful writers, but research is not their, it's not their favorite thing to do. 
but uh, but I, I do enjoy it. And uh, you know, for example, when I uh, when I do books with Bob Drury, and our most recent one is called Blood and Treasure, which came out in April about Daniel Boone. And when we work on a project together, I'm the primary research researcher. Bob's the primary writer. Right. So uh, I enjoy that that interaction that we have. That I'm I'm sort of like the table setter. I'm gathering all the material, organizing it, handing it over, so it could be turned into prose. And uh, it's 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 a bit of a luxury to do that because I don't have to also write it. But when I do a solo book like Lightning Down, I not only have to do the same, if not more research, because I'm the only one to blame if there's a mistake. Uh, only the one names on the cover. Uh, but then I have, to, I have to write the darn thing too. So it's, it's uh, but thankfully I enjoy research. Now th- this book, the central character is a flyer named Joe Moser. Now, when I think about him and what he went through, Louis Zamperini, the 1936 Olympic athlete comes to mind. He was also shut down and his book, it was a book about him by Laura Hildebrand, I believe, called Unbroken. Unbroken, yes. So that's, that was my reference point because what this guy went through, and in a sense, no pun intended, ultimately became Unbroken. So take us inside the background of uh, Joe Moser. Well, Joe Moser, I think, is a great character uh, for this story. Uh, first of all, he lived it, and, and so... Uh, but Joe Moser was born on a farm in the state of Washington. Uh, he grew up on the farm. He worked the farm. And uh, however, like a lot of other young men in the uh, aftermath, immediately after Pearl Harbor, he, he enlisted. He had a dream of becoming a flyer, which became a reality. Uh, Joe was able to earn his wings. And uh, he is, his squadron was shipped overseas. And he... They, they were put right to work. I mean, there was the anticipation of D-Day, that they had a lot of flights for that. There was D-Day itself. There was the post-D-Day when they were trying to get the, you know, the, the troops off the beaches and making working their way uh, east and, uh, through, through France. And Joe, he was only 22 years old right. uh, in, in August of 1944 when he was on his 44th mission, which is pretty incredible. He was already a, veter- a grizzled veteran. He was 22. And uh, he got shot down and he was almost immediately uh, captured by the Germans. And as most of us would expect, uh, he expected that he would be processed, maybe interrogated a bit. He only supplied his name, rank and serial number and then be sent off to a POW camp. And it was uh, one morning when the prison he was in outside Paris was emptied out of about 2000 people who were told to get on getting these cattle cars that this train was going to take them who knows where. Uh, that he started to realize something was different. Uh, he encountered, he realized he was one of 100, 170 pilots who were being kept at this, you know, terrible prison where people were tortured and killed. Why weren't they in a POW camp? And so they were wondering that as they, those who survived this five day train ride. Uh, and when the cattle car doors were open and they were stumbled out, thrown out, fell out of the cattle cars and lined up, and they had, they could see through the fence, these skeletal people, and they could see, and they were being confronted by SS guards and, and, uh, and, and fro- mouth frothing German shepherds that it, began, it dawned on them. We're at a Nazi concentration camp and it happened to be Buchenwald, which was the largest and one of the more notorious camps that the Germans operated. And they found out eventually, um, that they had been, considered terrorists. Uh, the Germans in, by 1944 were taking some desperate measures. And one of them was if you're a shot down pilot and you're helped by the French resistance or really any French citizen, right. you're considered terrorists and you don't have the protection of the Geneva Convention. So, uh, so these 170 pilots found themselves among the thousands and thousands and thousands of people incarcerated at Buchenwald fighting for everyday survival, just like they were. I want to take a few steps back because I think this is an important component to this story. The origin, because once again, we touched upon your research and about fighting machines in World War One and, and fighting machines in World War II. Um, the origins of the P-38, which was, uh, I guess, um, produced by Lockheed as a defense weapon. And it's really interesting because it was first... I believe came across with the Lend-Lease program because you couldn't give offensive weapons when because America was not in the war yet. So the P-38, tell us a little bit about its background and why it was a special fighting uh, aircraft. 
B-38 was a unique aircraft. Uh, first of all, it had two, uh, twin booms. Uh, and uh, people who read, you know, see, get a copy of Lightning Down, there's, there's a couple of photographs of, of, a, uh, of a P-38 Lightning. And so, uh, in fact, the Germans called it the plane with two pilots because they assumed it was, uh, you know, the, the two twin booms meant there were two pilots flying it. Uh, what what a big advantage that the P thirty eight had one of one of the big advantages is that it was used as a light bomber and used as a fighter plane. Right. It really had that ability to transition, you know, immediately from one to the other depending on what you needed it for. Uh, it had uh, you know long range. Uh, it had uh, very strong uh, military capabilities as far as firepower. And it was a, a plane that that pilots liked handling. The drawback that it had, a drawback. Uh, was that if you had to bail out of the of the the lightning, uh, it was difficult because people would try and bail out of it, and their parachutes or even just them, themselves would get caught on the 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 connection of the two booms at the rear of the plane. So uh, that was that was what the risk that they took. So that, unfortunately, uh, people you know pilots of P-38s that got damaged and, and were were you know about to crash. They did not survive the the trip down because they couldn't get free of the plane. In Joe Moser's case, uh, he actually turned the plane when his plane was hit and it was on fire. Right. He realized he couldn't get any farther. He couldn't. He had no hope of reaching Allied lines. He actually turned the plane upside down so he could drop out of the cockpit. You know, the the plexiglass had been blown away. So he had he, he just turned the plane over so he could drop out of the cockpit, which was probably a pretty smart thing to try. Once again, circle back a little bit before that happens. Uh, this is a great human interest story that spans 50 years. Mm -hmm. He is, there's a wounded B-51 bomber and Moser goes and escorts them back to safety. Yeah. And is it true that 50 years later, he met the pilot of that bomber in his hometown? He did. Uh, the, the, he had seen this bomber that was in very bad shape and he thought that he would uh, if it, if another German aircraft showed up, this bomber was finished. You know, they had really couldn't couldn't defend itself anymore, and it was desperately trying to have enough gas and have enough. You know, it didn't fall apart before it reached its its home base in England, and so Joe started doing these circle eights around the the, the bomber because uh, that would be a way to alert any curious German fighters that might be in the area that this bomber was under his protection. And it turned out that the bomber, yes, barely made it back. Joe himself, in doing the circle eights, was almost out of fuel. He barely made it back. And 50 years later, he was at a, a church picnic, I think it was, and, and somebody was talking about his World War II experiences and talked about being, being I think he was a, a navigator or a bombardier in this, in this particular bomber that was badly damaged and barely made it back. And he was always grateful to whoever it was in that P-38 that did the circle eights and helped him get home. And in the small world department, Joe overheard this and introduced himself and it was a very emotional thing for both of them uh, because of, of well, 50 years later, at least that the, the man who was in that damaged B-17, otherwise it wouldn't have been there. Right. Once again, my guest is the author of Lightning Down. He's Tom Clavin. This is the podcast Artful Periscope. And I am Larry Davidson. Hitler said when they were trying to, he basically said, um, is Paris burning? Is that mm -hmm. the reason why these and they were evacuating all the should have been POWs out of Paris and it was just bad timing because he almost got out of Paris and the prisoners almost the flyers almost got out of Paris and Hitler pretty much said it's Paris burning and they got taken to Buchenwald and the reason why I talk about Buchenwald over the course of my career I did have a couple of conversation interviews with Thomas Blatt who went to one of the death camps in which is Sobibor. Later, his story became a movie, and he wrote some books about that. And the death camps were above, I can say that, concentration camps. And your part of writing about Book and Wald is so disturbing in general, but then the treatment of these flyers who should have been in POW camps, and that part of the book for me is heart wrenching. Yeah, I had to I had to walk a fine line there because I I, I don't want people saying I can't read anymore because uh, that doesn't do them them any any help and they don't get to see 
all the remarkable twists and turns the story takes and how many times, not just in Buchenwald, but, but uh, you know, Joe is faced with a, a deadly situation and he, he doesn't almost survive. Uh, but I think it was important to point out or to show that these flyers, it didn't matter that they were American, British, Canadian, New Zealand, there was even one fly, one pilot from Jamaica, uh, that they were treated any differently because they were pilots. They, they were sent to Buchenwald. The idea was to be worked to death or some other way die. You know, uh, one of the, the, the terrible things about Buchenwald is there were many, many ways to die there, uh, work to death, shot. Uh, uh, disease, uh, you know, all these kind of things were happening. So I think it was important that they were treated no better than Jews at the camp were treated, Russians at the camp were treated, Gypsies were treated, and 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 Joe Moser is is our our, our you know farm boy American pilot who's found who's barely surviving in this camp, you know, day after day, week after week. At one point, he's down to 105 pounds. And in a lot of ways, he shouldn't survive, but he does to go on to more adventures. But uh, I, you had to, I think you had to be as, as frank as possible about the day-to-day existence of Buchenwald that these pilots were enduring. There's a character in the book, correct me if I'm wrong, his name is Colonel Larson. Was Colonel Larson become, in a sense, the basis for James Bond? Uh, there is a character in there, uh, I'm trying to remember, he had a hyphenated name, he was a, a British fellow, and uh, it is believed that, uh, you know, that, that Ian Fleming, who was a British intelligence right. officer during the war, and, oh, uh, Yeo Thomas, Y-E-O hyphen T-H-O-M-A-S, I think Edward Yeo Thomas, you know, had interactions with him because he was a British commando and spy. And uh, it was believed that that when, when several years after the war, I think it was around 1951-52 when Ian Fleming began Casino Royale, which was the very first James Bond book, that he modeled his character after this British intelligence officer who miraculously, despite all he went through, did survive the war. Now, when you look at oppositions in war, generals on one side tend to, in a sense, not admire but follow the tactics of the other generals they're fighting against. They study that. Rommel, for a sense, was studied deeply. Yeah. This sounds kind of ironic in terms of fighting air, uh, air power. Was one of the hierarchies of the Luftwaffe, did he get the flyers out of Buchenwald? Yeah, there's, there's, I mean, there's a very, there's an excellent book that was published a few years ago uh, by Adam Makos called A Higher Call, and which goes into more detail. There was still in World War II among uh, Allied pilots and, and, and German Luftwaffe pilots, sort of like a code of honor. You know, there were things you, you didn't do. And, and it, was, it was like a holdover from those, the whole Red Baron World War I kind of, kind of code of honor. And you respected each other. You, of course, when you were in, in dogfights in the air, you, you were trying to kill each other. And uh, but the reason why it's important, I'm glad you brought that up, is because at one point uh, the, the flyers, the pilots, had been at Buchenwald for quite some time, or not enough time, that it became clear that they were not conveniently dying and getting out of the way and disappearing and being tossed into the ovens, like was the intention. Right. So Hitler uh, uh, sent the order down to the commandant of Buchenwald. Okay, execute them. Let's get let's get rid of them. And um, uh, you know, they it got to the point where nothing, no other, there was no other plans or ideas that they had. And it was days away from the execution. And and the the Colonel Lamison, who was the senior officer of the pilots, uh, he basically threw a hail mary pass, and he got a message to a nearby Luftwaffe base that made its way to a man named Hans Trautloff, who was a, uh, a German ace and a hero of Germany and a high-ranking Luftwaffe official. And when he found out, or at least was given this message that they were allied pilots at Buchenwald, he was uh, aghast. You know, this is, you did not do things like this. Uh, and so he went to see for himself. He, he, had, he, called, he had this bogus inspection of Buchenwald and um, he was able to confirm uh, that the there were indeed pilots there, and and so it was because of his intervention. He went right up to Hermann Göring, who was the head of the Luftwaffe, who also was appalled by this. This was not the code of honor, and managed to get the pilots transferred out of Buchenwald. And some people, some readers may think, 
oh, that's the end of the story. You know, it's, it's, that's it. You know, but they lived happily ever after. But yes, they were sent to a POW camp but where they eventually ended up was a place in such terrible, terrible conditions. They also had to be moved from another POW camp to another at the third or fourth week in January, one of the worst winters of the 20th century, in what became known as the Death March. And Joe Moser was one of 10,000 uh, uh, men, uh, allied prisoners, who began that Death March, and, and 1,300 of them died. And, and Joe is at the point, too, where he collapses in the snow, and, and he believes he's about to die. Uh, thankfully, he does not, because there are more adventures to come. So let's... What why what kept him going? Because the conditions that you describe in this book were horrible. It was one of the worst winters in that time frame. And I imagine a lot of people didn't die. And even though they were now in a POW camp, it wasn't Buchenwald, but it was still very, very difficult. What kept these men going? The thought of going home or just surviving to the next day, to the next day, to the next day? In Joe's case, what uh, I emphasize in the book is, uh, you know, he grew up in a, uh, very close to his mother, his widowed mother and his siblings. And the two very personal things for him that kept him going was the strong desire, I'm not going to die here. I'm going to see my family again. I can't bear the thought of my mother getting a telegram that says I'm dead. So I'm going to do everything I can to stay alive. The other thing that kept him going is he was he was uh, a Catholic and he very much was uh, a strong adherent to, the, to his faith. And uh, he prayed all the time. He, 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 so in his case, um, uh, his faith helped keep him going too. I think a little bit of a larger picture is that the pilots uh, were led by, the senior officer was again, this, uh, Philip Lamison of New Zealand. And he had them all maintain discipline and support each other and help each other. And, uh, uh, so I think they also wanted to stay alive for each other. Each was trying to support the other. They would share food if they needed to. They, so that, that was, there, there wasn't just one main factor. There were several things that kept these guys going. So we talked about all the journeys he had from growing up in Washington to uh, being shot down to Buchenwald to POW camps. What was the journey like leaving that world and coming back first to America and then ultimately back to the state of Washington. When Joe, uh, Joe was in a camp that and he was, he was again, days if not perhaps hours away from death. Uh, uh, you know, it wasn't Buchenwald, it was a different camp, but the conditions there at the very end of the war were so, so awful, no food to go around, for example, that he was once more near death. And suddenly this American tank comes crashing through the fence. This was in April, 1945. And this camp is liberated, and but it's still two months before Joe gets home. It's a long, laborious journey, and when he gets home, and I think you know, uh, I know I was teary-eyed when I was writing the scene, but there is the scene where he gets into New York, he takes a train cross country, he gets to the state of Washington, gets off the train, and he calls his mother and says, "I'm here," and she hasn't seen him since 1942, you know, and and, and thought he was dead for for a lot of the time that he was away. And so she gets in her car, it's about 45 minutes to get to the train station. And this, this, when they first see each other, when mother and son are reunited, uh, I think it's, it's a very powerful experience. And so uh, Joe probably hoped, okay, I'm going to have, you know, just focus on getting a job, I hope we get married, right. love to have children, love to have a family, get back and be a member of my community. But what he found was, um, that what the very first time soon after he arrived home that he was asked by the local American Legion to talk about his World War II experiences and he mentioned that he was in Buchenwald, people didn't believe him. They started to laugh at him. Uh, worse, they thought he had made the story up about Buchenwald to make him seem like some kind of hero, to be more than he was. And it was incredible to him that his friends and neighbors would not believe him. So he vowed at that moment that he was never going to talk about it. And indeed he did not uh, for several decades. In fact, when he, he got married, he had children, he and his wife had five children. It wasn't until the 1980s that he revealed to his wife and children that he is what had happened to him during the war, including being in a Nazi concentration camp. He has something very in common with concentration camp survivors. A lot of them never talked about their experience. They never did because it was so horrific. They wanted to bury it and store it away someplace else. So I, I got this quote, and hopefully it's accurate, and I'll let you respond. This is from Joe Moser. 
I have had a wonderful life. I would go through it again to keep our freedom. Really, I knew I could be angry for what I had to go through, but I made life worth living. Is that accurate in terms of his thoughts? Yes. And I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I don't want people, although there are some very difficult aspects uh, and passages and okay, and chapters in Lightning Down, I really believe, and it's, it's hearing back from readers, uh, they seem to be agreeing with me. It's actually, Lightning Down is a very uplifting book. Joe Moser is sort of like our everyman and, and goes through terrible, terrible experiences. But for him, it transformed him in that he felt he became a better person. He felt like he had a love of humanity and his fellow human beings that was enhanced by his experiences. He also was a very patriotic man. You know, it wasn't like he, he ever felt, oh my God, I, uh, my country, I do all that for my country, which doesn't like me. You know, he, he believed that what he, everything he did to survive, to, to, to be a pilot and to, to survive Buchenwald and the subsequent camps he was in, was all part of doing what was right for, for the United States of America. So, um, and then his, he, he realizes that he's a, a, such a loving family man because he had seen what the worst that people could do to each other. And he wanted, he dedicated his life to being a good husband and a good father and a good neighbor and a good oil burner repairman right. uh, and, a, and a good community person. And, and uh, so it's, it's really, uh, I, I think, ultimately an uplifting story. In the time we have remaining, I also know a lot of times I miss, miss something in terms of the conversation, asking the questions. So have I left anything out in terms of this terrific book, Lightning Down? And if I did, what would you like to talk about that I missed? Well, I wouldn't say it's got left out because it's a little tricky. To, not giving away too much about the book, but, uh, you know, Joe obviously survived World War II. He did go home. He spent decades as a family man and everything. But he also, because he did not talk about his experiences, like many World War II veterans did not, as, and as you pointed out before, concentration camp survivors did not. But he had that extra whammy of not being believed when he tried to talk about it. So he kept it inside. The, the man didn't sleep for decades. I mean, he would sleep, but the nightmares would attack him at right. night. So, you know, right. There had to be some outlet for what he had experienced and what he was feeling. And he couldn't discuss it with his wife or his children. And it was, something happened to him in the 1980s, really an incredible uh, event happened to him in the 1980s related to his experience in, in Buchenwald and being a, a captive of the Germans that changed everything in his life, uh, that allowed him to sleep again, and that allowed him to talk to his family and say, listen, I need to tell you what I went through. I, I, I've been trying to protect you, but I've also been trying to protect myself. I'm not gonna do that anymore. I'm gonna tell you what I experienced. And I think that's such a, a dramatic uh, turning point for, in, in Joe Moser's story that, you know, I hope people will, will stick with it because even after he comes home, his journey is not over. Our journey is over, at least this time, because you are considered a friend of the podcast. So when the next book comes out, you, you know you can come on anytime that you like. The book is called Lightning Down. And once again, Tom Clavin, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Glad to be back. I want to thank once again Tom Clavin, also on the first segment, S.J. Roseanne, with her new book called Family Business. I'm Larry Davidson. To the next time, bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisofaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs, and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She tired to her kitchen chair.